while we're on this path of practice. And this path of practice leads in one, one direction. It leads toward peace, but an unshakable peace toward freedom, toward the release of the heart from confusion. And with this path of practice, Mingo Rinpoche says, the insight that the Buddha discovered is so simple and yet so difficult to accept. His teachings introduce us to a dormant, hidden, unrealized part of ourselves. This is a great paradox of the Buddhist path, that we practice in order to know what we already are, therefore attaining nothing, getting nothing, going nowhere. We seek to uncover what has already been here. And yet there's this path of practice. And on the path of practice, the uh, seven factors of awakening begin to come forward. These seven factors of awakening that you could say are already here, already available. They just come forward very naturally as the hindrances subside. So the theme of tonight's talk might be titled Waking Up, Waking Up with the Seven Factors. Remember the first few times I heard a Seven Factors of Awakening talk, kind of uh, felt like it's not for me. I'm nowhere close to awakening. And I think I kind of checked out from listening to those talks, intimidated by the title. But the Seven Factors of Awakening are beginning to come forward in all of our practices. They're not far away, very immediate in our practice. You can think of these as seven factors of deepening of practice or seven factors of waking up, waking up to see and know things as they are. The seven factors that begin to come forward as the forces of greed, aversion, delusion begin to subside. So tonight's talk is on the overall framework of the seven factors, how they arise, how to support how to cultivate, sustain the seven factors, and the role that they play in our practice. So the seven factors, mindfulness, investigation or discernment, energy, joy, sometimes known as rapture, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And these seven factors have a, end up having a transformative power, transformative power to support us in seeing and knowing things as they are. And they incline the heart and mind toward nibbana, toward the cessation of suffering. This from the Buddha. Practitioners, it is because one has developed and cultivated the seven factors of awakening that one is called wise and alert. So the seven factors can be uh, put into groups of three, three categories. I used to do a lot of public speaking and I learned three is always an easier number to remember. So the three is uh, three categories are mindfulness, the energizing factors and the calming factors. So mindfulness, the foundation, it stands by itself. Like the foundation of a house provides the support. And mindfulness, in effect, also provides a basic structure for the other factors of awakening. And then the energizing factors of um, investigation, energy, and joy. And the calming factors, tranquility, concentration, equanimity. Could view the seven factors like an opening to or revealing, like treasures that have always been here, but perhaps just not known, not appreciated. It's a beautiful thing we're doing with our practice. It, 
It's not about striving. It's most of all about being mindful, being here and now, cultivating what is wise and skillful, using the tools of practice wisely to support the unfolding. As we practice and as we practice, the hindrances begin to subside. We begin to see more clearly, directly, see the force of the mind that's caught in craving and grasping for what is pleasant and pleasurable, trying to make it permanent, attaching our happiness to it. We see the force of pushing away what is unpleasant, unwanted, painful, pushing away that leads in the direction of suffering, the, the grasping, the pushing away that is the cause of the suffering. And it's rooted in the misperception, the misperception that anything can be clung to for lasting happiness. In the material world, anything can be clung to in our own direct experience, not to be found. It's rooted in the misperception that there is anything reliable, anything we can kind of fix on for lasting happiness. And it's rooted in the misunderstanding that there is a self, like a stage director, in control of our unfolding experience, in control of the sounds, the sensations, the sights that are experienced, in control of the thoughts, the emotions that are experienced, all just arising from causes and conditions. We do have a choice point. We have wise intention. We can choose to cultivate what is wise and skillful. Through our practice, we cultivate intentions of renunciation, of letting go, letting go of attachment, letting go of our attachment to our preferences, intention of metta, and the intention of compassion, of self-compassion, to meet suffering with compassion. With our call of practice, we're to directly, viscerally know and understand suffering and its cause, to come close to it, to be intimate with it, to bring the tool of investigation. We have to... Um, We really have to stay with our practice and we have to need, we need the tool of compassion to support coming close to suffering so we can see and understand it directly. And we recognize and cultivate all the wholesome qualities of mind which bring forth happiness, joy, calm. And as Tara said on the very first full day of our retreat, the, the night of our first full day, this is a path of happiness. We may not always feel it with all the challenges of practice, but this is a path of happiness, a path that leads in the direction of a greater and a greater happiness. So we also recognize the many wholesome mind states that arise, wholesome mind states of mindfulness, concentration, metta, generosity, gratitude, equanimity, many wholesome mind states. And we practice to sustain, to strengthen these wholesome mind states, supporting their future arising, all in support of awakening. This is our path to awaken to the truth, awaken to the Dhamma. And in effect, as Minga Rinpoche said, to uncover what is already here. And everything is in support of awakening, waking up. We undertake the five precepts periodically, or the eight precepts, the first five precepts about non-harming, not causing harm. And that does support a happiness, a sense of being in harmony with our own hearts, harmony with others, sense of safety for others in our community. But most of all, we practice with sila, with non-harming, to support our own awakening. That is a correct understanding of the Buddha's teachings. And we can know this directly if we say an unkind word or 
take an action that causes harm, we feel the ripple effect in our hearts and minds. Our mindfulness may not be steady. Concentration may be weak because of that disturbance. So it's a powerful motivator in, in my own practice to purify my actions, uh, to be deeply committed to not causing harm in any way in the world, knowing that not only is it for the benefit of many, but that ultimately it supports awakening. So with our practice, with the subsidence of, our hin- of the hindrances, with the practice of mindfulness, practicing non-harming, cultivating intentions of renunciation, metta, compassion, making wise effort, cultivating concentration. Then the wholesome awakening factors begin to reveal themselves and come forward. And as they come forward, they in effect support one another, deepen deepening the experience of those awakening factors, the awakening factors getting deeper and support the deepest insights into the truth of the way things are. So the seven factors are present, arising here. So as I I read the list now, you might just reflect, take these in, maybe connect with experiences you've had on the retreat where you can connect with some of these awakening factors. First factor of mindfulness, the anchor of our practice. As we build more continuity, stability, we can sense our mindfulness strengthening. The second awakening factor um, of investigation, the discernment, the discernment of the direct experience. Energy, third awakening factor. Perhaps we experience this with less sleepiness, maybe more energy and just being in the Dharma. And the joy, many ways joy arises in our practice. May joy in just being mindful, maybe a sense of rapture that can come forward. Tranquility, a very deep calm that can come at times in practice and become more sustaining. Concentration and equanimity. Equanimity, a coming into balance. A balance, neutrality, that accepts things just as they are. It, in effect, recognizes the present moment cannot be any different. The Buddha's basic instruction on the seven factors in the Satipatthana Sutta is to know when any one of these seven factors is present and to know when absent. And as as we continue on the path of practice, the awakening factors can both support, and then at times we can really feel like the awakening factors are carrying the practice. We can get a real sense of the Dhamma doing us as as the awakening factors strengthen be a real letting go of uh, a sense of I'm in control of this unfolding experience, a sense of deepening surrender, deepening surrender, deepening letting go to just being here and now, being intimate, being interested in the moment-to-moment experience. For several years in practice, I've really had this misguided impression that I could get somewhere, that I could make something happen. I'd hear the words, let go, surrender, just be present. I kept pushing, striving, trying to make something happen. Lost a lot of ground that way. So I encourage you to really just the process of continuing letting go to receive the experience as it is. Use an analogy of how the seven factors work to kind of uh, and emerge as we as we practice. Analogy I might use is um, maybe sitting on the bench by the big bell in the morning. We see the fog. Some mornings there's very heavy fog, uh, and the fog could be um, 
use as a metaphor the, for the hindrances or the defilements. When we sit on the bench, we see the fog, it's all we can see, but we know there's just this really great view, maybe the colors in the sky from the sunrise. And we sit, we practice mindfulness. And it's as if the light of awareness begins to burn through the fog and the awakening factors emerge, these beautiful qualities. So just like working with the hindrances, we recognize and recognize when present, recognize when absent. We do the same thing with the seven factors. And we're called upon to appreciate them, open more deeply to these seven factors, really let them settle in. Know the experience deeply through the body and mind. What does interest, investigation, discernment, what does it feel like in the body and mind? Maybe a sense of uprightness, happiness, energy. How is the energy that comes forward with practice, the awakening factor of energy, how is it experienced? Maybe a sense of uplift, aliveness, even joy. What does tranquility feel like? Perhaps warmth, great sense of comfort, ease. And as we open to these awakening factors, we're effectively supporting their sustaining, developing, strengthening. And in effect, we're creating new grooves in the heart and mind, kind of a rewiring of the neurology of the body and mind. It supports our practice and supports the recognition of what leads to clarity, what leads to peace, and to be able to discern clearly what leads in the direction of suffering. So with the seven factors, there, there is a kind of sequencing in their unfolding in the order that I listed the seven factors, but they're also supporting one another along the way. And as they deepen, there are a number of ways they're reconnecting, supporting one another. Just as at the beginning of our practice, we were called upon to cultivate mindfulness, but we're also cultivating concentration in being with a primary touch point, anchor of hearing, sensing, breathing, having that focus on a primary object that builds concentration, that supports a gathering and collecting of attention. And that concentration supports our practice of mindfulness. So those awakening factors coming together. A little bit more about each of these seven factors, really just touching into these seven factors that um, we, we will spend more time going into in more detail on the retreat. Mindfulness, sati. I really like the definition of present awareness. What is mindfulness? Sometimes we can be confusing to understand. And the simple explanation of present, present awareness and we say my awareness or my mindfulness, but this just terminology and truth, we can't identify mindfulness as ours or awareness as ours. In many ways, I like to think we're aware-ing or mindful-ing, more like the activity of mindfulness. Mindfulness is always available, always present, to meet our experience fully. It doesn't judge and it receives all experience equally. Another clear uh, definition of mindfulness from Guy Armstrong is that, is that um, the definition is to understand what your experience is in the present moment. To understand what your experience is in the present moment. And that implies a sense of coming close to, of discernment, really seeing clearly the direct experience. With mindfulness, there's a deepening of moment-to-moment -moment awareness. Never too much mindfulness. Never too much mindfulness. 
And we emphasize again and again the importance of carrying the practice into every activity throughout the day, building that continuity, using the body as an anchor to keep reconnecting again and again. And really everything is set up at Spirit Rock here to support that. Everything is really kept simple. The schedule, the activities, really kept simple to support your practice. It's so beautiful to see the way the staff are supporting our practice, really honoring our practice in that way. So the invitation to all of you to keep staying with the practice, keep building the continuity. Such a precious gift you're giving yourself, precious gift for the world to be practicing this, practicing in this very dedicated way. Now, as we're cultivating mindfulness, we use the tools of practice to begin to come closer, maybe turning attention to a specific area, maybe to just being aware of the changing moment-to-moment experience at the level of sense to our contact, maybe turning attention for some period of time to feeling tone, maybe just aware of the arising and passing of pleasant, unpleasant, neither unpleasant nor unpleasant, feeling tone with a sense dark contact that occurs while in the dining hall. Maybe bringing mindfulness of thoughts, emotions, or intentions. So from Joseph Goldstein, from mindfulness to function as a factor of awakening, it has to be the springboard for investigation. So this is a second factor of awakening, Dhamma Vachaya. Investigation of states. In many ways, I prefer the definition or the terminology discerning the Dhamma because uh, I misunderstood the word investigation my first few years of practice and thought that that implied a sense of figuring out. And that's not what we mean. So I actually looked up in the dictionary a couple days ago and found a definition of investigation in Merriam-Webster that, that fits with, with the investigation quality in our practice. To observe or study by close examination. To observe or study by close examination. So closely examining, coming close to, being intimate with, curious about the direct experience, maybe seeing the moment-to-moment experience through the lens of some of the tools that we offer, through the lens of the feeling tone that's arising and passing, through the lens of the three characteristics. So, we can check this out too, the way we use the investigation factor to discern what is self-skillful, to discern what supports a waking up, the cultivation of wholesome mind states, the recognition and abandoning of unwholesome mind states, the recognition we have a choice point. We have a choice point. Uh, Just the other day when I was off campus, just saw something happen and uh, the mind got kind of triggered And I thought, I need to call the city about this or send an email about this problem. I could feel the reactivity in my mind coming up, like, oh, this is wrong. I felt like, oh, this is like the hot coal of aversion I'm holding in my hand. I'm getting burned. No one else is getting burned. What really happened? It was seeing, it was unpleasant. There's an aversion arising to it. And then the whole story and suffering arising. And then seeing it, I could let go. Just let the hot coal drop. This is the kind of discernment we can begin to use in our practice. And we can directly see that renunciation, metta, compassion, they really support happiness. They really support our practice of mindfulness and support clear seeing. Another great source of confusion in my early practice, I thought they were just nice things on the side. 
but they're really so key to the practice. These are what constitute wise intention. Intentions are enunciation, metta, compassion, the second, um, second eightfold path factor. And we can bring attention to the intention, as uh, Tara was talking about this morning. Some key places, it's easy to practice with intention, just watching for the intention before standing in the hall. Watching for the intention as you turn when you're doing your walking practice. Watching for intentions in the dining hall. I remember a uh, powerful moment one time on a retreat, practicing the way that Tara was suggesting the intention, lifting the fork, intention of chewing, really being precise with the noting, being with it. And then there was an unpleasant sensation. There was a crumb on my lip. And I could kind of feel that volitional impulse that actually comes after the intention. It's the, the volitional impulse is neutral. It's kind of like a pulsing right before an action. There's actually an intention beneath that. I was checking that out. I was also an intention to not lift my hands. I could feel that pulsing in my hand, an intention to lift my napkin. The person sitting across from me must have wondered what was going on. And then the dramatic moment. The tongue darted out of the mouth and grabbed the, <laughs> grabbed the crumb. <laughs> Whoa, who was that? That wasn't me. <laughs> Little moments of drama and retreats. <laughs> Take what we can get. And we can really get an idea, too, to discern the way the self-identification can cause so much pain, so much tightening up. And the letting go of self-identification kind of opens the heart and mind, releases. So when we work with moods or emotions with emotions, say of fear or anger, take this in. How does this feel? I am angry. I am afraid. I'm an angry person. I'm a fearful person. Versus the wise labeling, non-personal labeling, this is what anger feels like. This is what fear feels like. Or maybe even better yet, ah, I'm suffering. May I be free of suffering. And this is what the anger feels like now. There's a gentleness, a spaciousness to that. I remember on being on a, a long retreat one time, and I was really kind of stuck, kind of stuck in the muck. I uh, was remembering a past harm, a way that I'd been harmed, and there's some anger, fear, and just kind of stuck in it and feeling pretty alone with that. I am suffering. And my teacher said, you feel your suffering, you see it as your suffering, I see the suffering of the world. I just kind of took that in, didn't think about it. Just a seed being planted, continued with my walking practice and my sitting practice. And later in the day, after lunch, when I was going for a short walk, kind of the length of walking down to the horses, a little insight arose. Oh, millions of people in the world experience the same pain I experienced. And recognizing that, my heart opened. I immediately felt compassion for all those beings. And I recognized that I was one of them too. It shifted the relationships that I could let go of it being my story. So we bring in this tool of RAIN, recognizing, allowing, intimate with, and then skillfully discern how we can let go of the identification of the emotions, of the difficulties, of the suffering we experience being personal, who we are. So as Dhammapachaya becomes more refined, more and more refined, um, it supports the, the third factor of awakening arising, which is energy. 
we become more interested and then energy arises and we become more interested, more curious in our experience. Virya is a Pali word. Also defined as courage, strength, vigor. It's exactly the opposite of sloth and torpor. Exactly the opposite of sloth and torpor. It can be felt energetically as a kind of a sense of having woken up an easeful strength and energy, maybe even a sense of the spine lifting up. And the, this energy that comes forward is not about making it happen. You don't make energy arise. It, it comes forward as the hindrances subside. It, um, it supports understanding. It supports being more intimate with our direct experience when the energy is present and it gives us courage and strength to support a stronger, more precise moment-to-moment awareness. It can be supported by appreciating the preciousness of this life, maybe connecting with the five daily recollections on, on the impermanence of everything we know and love, the impermanence of this body, maybe connecting with the triple gem, the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha can bring forth energy. When we're sleepy, sometimes it's really useful to sometimes just look to the front, to the altar. Many, many times on retreats, I've been inspired by looking toward the Buddha, seeing his hand on the earth, knowing the Buddha faced the hindrance of doubt in the night of his awakening. And he put his hand on the earth and said, I have a right to be here. I have a right to be free. And we can draw faith inspiration from that. And that will bring forth energy, confidence in our practice. Connect with a trusting confidence in our own hearts, a trusting in our own right to be free. And this energy supports a sense of growing happiness that opens toward joy, the fourth factor of awakening. Also referred to as rapture or piti. Uh, it can arise very naturally in our practice as mindfulness, as energy strengthen. We can support the arising of joy by connecting with gratitude, generosity. We may be reflecting back on our generous acts. The joy that comes forward with sila. So many ways that joy comes forward in our path of practice. We may feel joy sometimes in just being present and mindful, even in times when we're practicing with a hindrance. We're practicing with it skillfully. We can be, feel the joy in just practicing in that skillful way. As this factor deepens, it can be experienced as PT, this kind of um, intense energetic feeling. It's often felt very strongly in the body. It's described as the anticipation of that which arises when we're crossing a hot desert and suddenly see a cool and refreshing oasis. And this uh, PT, this rapture, can be felt at times as a trembling, jolts of energy, maybe lights, wave-like energy. At times, more of a pervading, sublime kind of acceleration and happiness. And can even be at times felt to feel like a sense of levitating, like we're actually coming off the ground. Oh. We can get attached to rapture because it's kind of exciting when rapture arises. If rapture is around for a while, it can get tiring too. So, important that we not attach to rapture and remember that it's just step along the path. Uh, this is the end of the review of the energizing factors, the energizing factors, our investigation, energy, and enjoy or rapture. And of course, mindfulness is a foundation. So now the calming factors are tranquility, concentration, and equanimity, the final three. With a deeper letting go, deeper renunciation, deeper surrender as the defilements subside. And the Dhammapada, be still and silent. Know the stillness of freedom. 
where there is no more striving. So the fifth awakening factor, tranquility, sadi, calm, a serenity, sense of serenity, coolness, like the deep calm we experience and actually reaching the oasis. Maybe you've experienced the calm, like almost a center of the perfect stillness that you've experienced on, re- on this retreat at times. Maybe in sitting, maybe in walking, maybe in just having a cup of tea. Those times when there's no desire, aversion, ill will present. Maybe a sense of clarity in the heart and mind with that deep sense of calm and tranquility can be felt the sense of calm in the body and in the mind, sense of deep subtleness, maybe a great ease. Sometimes uh, folks describe it as a lightness, sense of being very light. From the Dhammapada again, wise people become serene, like a deep, deep, smooth and still lake. This is tranquility. We can kind of get lost in tranquility. It feels so good. When we can kind of like settle back in, there can be kind of some loss of mindfulness, some loss of discernment. And so at times when that places of deep calm, we may need to actually return to noting the moment-to-moment experience just to sharpen the qualities of mindfulness and investigation. And from this deep tranquility, then a deep concentration arises, samadhi, the sixth factor of awakening. And concentration plays a very important role in the path of practice. It's one of the five spiritual faculties, a factor of awakening, eightfold path factor, and it is deeply supported by calm and tranquility. I remember the first time experiencing this deep concentration coming from a place of tranquility. Just a sense of great ease, almost effortless kind of concentration. No sense of striving whatsoever. Entirely different from the concentration I'd experienced in the past, which was very focused, sense of tightening and effort, the deep samadhi, the deep concentration comes out of a place of great calm, great ease. This concentration, as I said before, serves to gather, collect attention, unifies the mind, the sense of the mind being unified. No distraction in the concentration becomes deeper and deeper. Nothing distracts the mind. And there's two kinds of concentration. There's a one-pointed concentration that some some folks are practicing here where it's just staying with a single object, making concentration the primary practice. Staying with a breath, with metta, with the metta phrases, making that the object. One-pointed concentration connecting and sustaining the taka and the chara. And the second type is momentary concentration, which is concentration uh, staying with changing objects. This is a concentration that those of us who are primarily practicing with mindfulness practice will experience a concentration of staying with the objects changing moment to moment which also builds steadiness and strengthens over time. Um, As concentration strengthens, it too, again, will go back and affect and serve to further strengthen mindfulness, further strengthen the quality of Dhamma-vachaya, and support the arising of greater energy levels as well. And there's a great happiness, joy, that can come from concentration, too. And concentration leads to equanimity, the foundation for the clearest understanding, the deepest insights, 
for the release of the heart and mind from confusion. So equanimity, upeka, seventh fact of awakening. It's a sense that Bhikkhu Bodhi describes it as being there in the middleness, in the middleness of it all. Vast, spacious quality, accepts things as they are. It's kind of a neutrality, neutrality to whatever is present. I've experienced it sometimes on retreats when the weather is warm here at Spirit Rock and uh, equanimity is strong. A bee can land on my face, land on my cheek, right near my eye. Perfect neutrality. There's no disturbance. It's a symbol of the kind of the neutrality, the strength of the neutrality that can come forward as equanimity strengthens. So equanimity it shows up on many Buddhist lists. It's, of course, a Brahma-Vihara, one of the four Brahma-Viharas we're practicing with, one of the ten paramis. So in effect, it's both a heart quality, a Brahma-Vihara, but also on the factors of awakening, a factor that deeply supports wisdom, deeply supports the clearest seeing and knowing of things as they are. This is a, a beautiful description of uh, equanimity from one of my favorite poems, Verses of the Face Mind by the third Zen patriarch, Sing San, which begins, The great way is not difficult for those not attached to preferences, when neither sense desire nor aversion arise, all is clear and undisguised. Separate from it by the smallest amount, and you are as far from it as heaven is from earth. Great way is not difficult for those not attached to sense desire or aversion. The letting go, the letting go that is at the very heart of our practice. I reflected back today on some ways that uh, equanimity how it strengthens with practice and how I can recognize equanimity coming forward in the food line. Such a great place, place to practice in the dining hall. I have a lot of, uh, quite a few food allergies and the foods I'm allergic to show up a lot <laughs> at retreat centers. And I can recognize the pattern, uh, the pattern at the beginning of a retreat. Oh, I can't eat that main course. Some aversion. Oh, do they have to serve these same same food items every time? <laughs> Reactivity, kind of suffering taking hold. And then as there's a settling in, I can pay a little bit more, paying a little bit more attention, seeing unpleasant, some aversion. Eh, let it go. Drop the hot coal. And then as practice deepens, ah, oh, okay. Simple foods today. No problem. It's okay. <laughs> Sometimes it's three or four days in a row just eating the simple foods, which are pretty pretty darn good at Spirit Rock. But at Insight Meditation Society, it's steamed tofu, white rice, and pinto beans every single day. So to have that as a main meal four days in a row, a test of equanimity. <laughs> So equanimity can become like a granite mountain. It can really become like a granite mountain. It just feels unshakable. Unshakable, like it can be present for all the vicissitudes of life, for whatever practice, for whatever comes forward in our practice. We really need it at times in practice, times where great fear may arise in practice. And we need the support of equanimity. So it can feel unshakable like a granite mountain, but at the same time, almost paradoxically, there's a sense of great spaciousness. Even with a sense of the granite mountain that is unshakable. So equanimity ends up supporting the greatest clarity, kind of combining with Dhammavachaya. Dhammavachaya is often portrayed as like the sword that cuts through 
cuts through ignorance so we can see and know things as they are, so we can recognize and understand directly the three characteristics that uh, Tara and Kim spoke to the last two nights. So we can have insights into these three characteristics and in effect open the doors to awakening, open the doors to freedom, insights into anicca, the constant change, everything arising and passing, and even the knowing arising and passing. The Buddha said, that which has the nature to arise has the nature to cease. The characteristic, characteristic of every moment of experience, the characteristic of existence, second characteristic of dukkha, unsatisfactory nature, all conditioned experience, nothing to latch onto whatsoever. This is dukkha. It is unreliable. We can't find lasting happiness, satisfaction in the material world. Cannot be found. And no part of the experience to be called self. Empty. Everything arising from causes and conditions. So the practice, the seven factors, really kind of like come forward, deepen, kind of become predominant as they deepen. They become enlightenment, enlightenment factors are sometimes referred to as they most deeply strengthen. And they cut through the deepest levels of ignorance to see and know, directly, viscerally understand the Four Noble Truths. Four Noble Truths that Kim spoke about last night that we'll keep reconnecting with. The Noble Truths of, of Dukkha, the unreliability, unsatisfactoriness. The Noble Truth, the second Noble Truth of craving, craving for sense desire at the level of craving for pleasant sights, sounds, sensations, smells, tastes, thoughts. Craving for sense desire at that level. Craving for being, for non-being. That craving is a cause of our mental suffering. And when that craving ceases, there is a cessation of suffering. A third noble, noble truth. There is cease. There is a cessation of suffering. There is peace. And there is this path of practice this eightfold path of practice, the fourth noble truth, this eightfold path of practice that leads toward the very end of suffering. Now just in conclusion, just in summary, the seven factors naturally arise as our practice deepens, as the defilements subside. We're called upon to know when they're present, know when they're absent, appreciate their presence, Strengthen, cultivate these factors. And they will support the clearest seeing, knowing of things as they are. They will carry our practice. This quote from the Buddha, just as practitioners in a peaked house, all rafters whatsoever, go together to the peak, slope to the peak, join in the peak, and of them all, the peak is reckoned chief, even so, practitioners, the practitioner who cultivates and makes much of the seven factors of awakening slopes to nibbana, inclines to nibbana, tends to nibbana. Well, let's sit for a few minutes, and I'll close the sit with a reading of a short poem.
the last lines from T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Through the unknown, unremembered gate, when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning, at the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall and the children in the apple tree, not known because not looked for, but heard, half heard in the stillness, between two waves of the sea, quick now, here, now, always, a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well, when the tongues of flames are enfolded into the crown knot of fire, and the fire and rose are one. walking period and return for uh, chanting in a late night sit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.